We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this afternoon. Again, we just started last week a series through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is actually just a, a wonderful, wonderful book, a unique book in the New Testament because, because it is the one narrative book of the New Testament church. And so it's one sort of historical account of what life was like in the early church after Jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended to the Father, and the apostolic team was launched out, and the church, in a sense, began. And so here in the book of Acts, we get sort of a picture, and it's, it's glorious, it's exciting, it's, it's fantastic. And so one of, the, one of the real benefits of reading and studying the book of Acts is that it, it just it sparks your imagination about what life is like for the church, for the people of God to be gathered, filled with the Holy Spirit, functioning together with the power of God and the devotion that they have to God and to one another. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing story. It's exciting. It's adventurous. It's filled with all kinds of wonderful things. And so part of the hope is that as we study through it, it will, in fact, inspire you. I mean, really fill up your imagination of what it's supposed to look like, what it could look like, what it ought to look like. We, we, we need that. You need that. I need that. You, you, we need to have some kind of vision in our mind of what it could look like. It's one thing to just read a statement on the page. Oh, the people of God loved each other and were devoted to one another and they read their Bibles and they served one another. But when you start to see a picture, when you read a narrative about what it really looked like, it fills up your imagination and you begin to get envisioned with, with a compelling drive to say, we, we want to be a part of this. We want to pray to this end and we want to participate in this. And so that's what we're hoping really in part to accomplish uh, through this, but our imaginations certainly can at times run wild and not always stay within godly, helpful perimeters. Now, all the excitement in the book of Acts really starts in Acts chapter 2, but there's an Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1 are laid down two foundational realities about who we are as a church and what it means for us to be a church filled with the Holy Spirit and on the mission that Christ has entrusted to us. They are like guardrails for the church, if you will, that keep us on track, that help us keep our heads and stay on task. The first one we talked about last Sunday is that it's all about Jesus. Everything about who we are and what we do and uh, how we are formed. He is personally the author, the finisher, the beginning, the completer of our faith. Everything about who we are and what we do is because of Jesus. It is about Jesus. It is for Jesus. And so we lay down this foundation to make sure that we don't lose our way and become something other than connected to Jesus. The second one, the second foundational reality is what we're going to look at this afternoon, 
it is summed up in the phrase, the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures, the Bible, must be fulfilled. There is no being filled with the Spirit, and there's no carrying out of our mission outside or beyond the words of Scripture. The Bible is important. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is the living Word, and the Scriptures are the written Word, and these are two foundations, two directives, and the two parameters that the church exists upon and within. We are Jesus' people, and we are Bible people. And with those two foundational, fundamental realities of the church, if we hold fast to those, if we have those down well in our soul, well in our conviction, we're ready to jump into Acts chapter 2, and the excitement begins. But without these two, Acts chapter 2 can be dangerous and problematic and troublesome. Okay, let's read a passage of Scripture together. I'm in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 12 and read to the end of that chapter. So you can follow along. The text should be on the screen behind me as well. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, and with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, out of this text, I'm going to lay it out like this. We go from waiting to prayer, from prayer to Bibles, from Bibles to action. It's going to be a nice rhythm for the Christian life, all of us to apply and think through. Point number one, from waiting to prayer. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Last week we read the text, chapter 1, verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Not to make too much of word studies, but when it says he ordered them, that's the same word that Jesus used to cast out demons. It's a strong word. Go to Jerusalem and wait. I order you. I command you. This is what I want you to do. Back in Luke 24, 49, do not depart from Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking to the apostles again, but wait for the promise. Remain in the city until you are clothed with power. Now, you know, and I know, it is strongly contrary to our nature to wait. We do not like to wait. Now, we've always had a bit of an issue with instant gratification, but you and I live in times where this has only gotten worse, and it has become detrimental to your personality. We are easily impatient, easily frustrated with having to wait. The barista is allowed two minutes to get our complex drink exactly right and not a minute more. And you know, if it takes more than three seconds for that page to load on your phone, you are done with that website. It is no good. We have no time to be sitting around waiting for anything. We are so used to being so immediately gratified and satisfied. But God has his own timing. God has his own timing. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait. Now, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you have discovered probably the hard way that God's timing is not your timing. And oftentimes, God calls us to wait. God has his own timing for things, regardless of our own preferences. But we will see in the story that God was orchestrating something big which required them to wait. You could ask yourself, okay, why didn't he just pour out the Spirit? Why wait? Why not just pour out the Holy Spirit right then and there? Receiving the Holy Spirit was a great thing, fantastic thing. I mean, the sooner you get on your, your long-term plan, the better, right? So why not just pour it out? But see, God was orchestrating something. And in reality, in 10 days from the beginning of this time of waiting was going to come the day of Pentecost. When there was going to be people from all over the known world in the city celebrating, ready to observe and see a phenomenal outpouring of the Spirit. Friends, when God tells you to wait, would you please trust Him in the waiting God is orchestrating something big. 
if what he's about to do or what you're asking from him is being delayed, know that he's wise and he is good. And the waiting is a good thing because the Lord's timing is wonderful. We don't like it. We feel like it's a waste of time. You go to the doctor, you're sitting in the waiting room, and it is dead time. It is downtime. It is painful time. Check your email, play a little Candy Crush, something to pass the time, fiddling around on your phone, looking at little video clips or something we don't like to wait. But people of God, followers of Jesus in God's economy, waiting is remarkable. Remarkable things happen in the heart of the believer when we wait. In a sense, the entire Christian life is a life of waiting. There is something that no matter how good it gets, there is something in the future, a consummation of all things, a revealing of Christ, an eternity with Him. We are, we are all, in a sense, waiting. But God promises to meet us in our waiting. Now think about the contrast, how you and I feel when the coffee takes too long, the page doesn't load, doctor is delayed, and we're waiting. Now hear what God says about waiting. Isaiah 40, wonderful passage. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. Okay, everybody gets tired sometime. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who finds strength? The one who waits for the Lord. As Christians, we are designed to be good, even the best waiters. Waiting is part of our new nature. Jesus says, go to Jerusalem and wait. And this group goes to Jerusalem, and what do they do? They pray. They pray. Did Jesus say, go have a prayer meeting, go pray? No, Jesus said, go and wait. But friends, waiting means praying. Waiting is not idleness. Waiting is not doing nothing. When God tells you to wait, he is in a sense telling you it's time to pray. So the group gathers and they begin to pray. This began the prayer meeting that lasted 10 days and changed everything. Jesus ordered them, go wait. Don't leave until it happens. It happens. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They couldn't have been too sure of what precisely to expect, but stay. 
And they go and they begin to pray. We're given a specific list of 11 apostles to set the stage for the action that's going to come next. And a vague description of others that end up making up a group of about 120 in total at this prayer meeting. And Luke describes their prayer time as constant. They were together for 10 days and they prayed constantly, regularly, ongoing activity. It is the activity of waiting in our text that reads like it was the most natural and assumed thing for followers of Christ to do. Told to wait, time to pray. Waiting for God to do something. God promises to do something. He's not doing it right now. He's going to do it. We don't know how soon. We don't know how long. What do we do in the meantime? We wait and we pray. It's time to pray. In those seasons of waiting, prayerful waiting, this is where some real power begins to work in the heart and soul of the believers. This is where strength gets renewed. This is where we find strength beyond ourselves. This is where we cash in our weakness and our faltering and our failure and cash it in for God to rebuild, restore, and grant to us strength that is beyond us. Their prayer was constant. And they prayed with one accord. We have a vague list there's apostles, there's women, there's the mother of Jesus, there's his brothers, there's 120 people in this room. We can say with confidence there was the garden variety of every personality type in the room. You take 120 of any people, you got 120 different people in the room. And they're all there mixed together. We have the outspoken, we have the quiet we have the aggressive, we have the timid, we have every form of personality in this room. And yet, it's time to wait. They begin to pray. And how do they pray? In one accord. Prayer meetings. The great leveler. Everybody comes in all on the same footing, all on the same ground. We were laughing a little bit before. You know, we pray before the meeting back in the little lounge area by the piano there. Please come and join us. There were a couple of little girls there. I think Zoe was there, and it was Abby and Zoe. And said, girls, would you like to pray with us? <gasps> no. <laughs> okay. Pray with the pastors? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know if that thought would ever cross your mind. Do you want to come pray with the pastors? Does that... Does that do anything in your soul? Because it should not do anything. Because when we come into the throne of God's grace, trust me, I have no special audience with God because of some job title. We all come in standing on the ground, should be on our knees before Almighty God. And young or old, men, women, children, adults, Elderly, sharp, intellectual, simple, clear. It's, it makes no difference. Sincere, we need the Lord. Anybody, everybody 
can pray. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting and sort of think, okay, how am I, I going to articulate this? What are people going to think about how I say this? I might not say it quite right. I'm not sure. I won't use big words. I'm not sure. I don't want to fumble on my words. So you hesitate to pray. You know, it's the most refreshing thing is when just someone says, dear Jesus, we just need you. Help us. We're weak. Just pray. They prayed in one accord, like one group, all hearts unified. They needed the Lord. Jesus told them, wait, something was going to happen. God was going to do something phenomenal. And they didn't know how soon, how late. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They were all in suspense. And so they sought the Lord in one accord. They prayed like they were all part of the same thing, needing the same thing, hoping for the same thing. What a glorious picture we're given here. God is about to do something so entirely supernatural. And all God's people are doing is gathered together joyfully, constantly, in one accord, praying beautiful picture of the bride of Christ, the people of God. When God has us waiting, it's time to pray. Can I insert a little application question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for something? Are you hoping, asking for God to move in some way? Part B, are you praying? If you're waiting, are you praying? That's what waiting is for. That's what you should do while you're waiting. And that's where the powerful work of the Spirit comes in, into your life. Okay, from waiting to prayer, point two, from prayer to Bibles. In the midst of this prayer meeting, at some point along the way, Peter stands up, and makes this pronouncement. The scriptures must be fulfilled. The apostles, I have to imagine that at this season in their lives, the Bible, their Bibles, must have felt like an entirely new book to them. Now let's assume they all grew up learning their Bibles. They memorized Scripture. They grew up in Hebrew school. They grew up learning Scriptures. They were familiar with the Bible. But then they spent time with Jesus. And at the end of the Gospel according to Luke, same author of Acts, Jesus said to them, he said that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Can you imagine and maybe this might be some parallel. Maybe some of you like grew up in a Christian home, grew up in church, went to Sunday school, memorized verses of Scripture, learned your Bible fairly well, but you're not a Christian. And at some point, maybe a little bit later in life, towards adulthood, into adulthood, God supernaturally saves you, and all of a sudden, all those Scriptures take on a new 
and wonderful and glorious light. Your heart gets illuminated by the Spirit. And it's not that what you knew before was wrong or false or had changed, but now you have eyes to see. Now, can you imagine these apostles spending three and a half years with Jesus, having grown up, learning the scriptures, and now Jesus begins to teach them and train them all these things in Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms have made many, many references to me, and they're all going to be fulfilled, and you're going to see them be fulfilled in my life, in me, in what's going to happen to me. Well, they are on a, on, a, on a new season with their Bibles at this point. Jesus had set them with a set of new eyes here to see and understand. And Peter begins to put things together, first about Jesus, but then also about Judas. This lens he has now, oh, these things, are, these things must be fulfilled. And they are being fulfilled. And so in Psalm 69, uh, Jesus is being referred to in the New Testament five times out of Psalm 69. And the judgment for those who are against the Lord includes this phrase, a desolate camp. Those who oppose the Lord. Part of God's judgment is going to be their camp is going to be desolate. And now we see them looking at this field of blood that the money given to Judas purchased. And everybody knows about this field of blood where supposedly Judas committed suicide on this field. And so now we have this desolate plot of ground in the city that everybody is aware of, knows what it's about, and they see the desolation and Peter is putting these things together. So they're not merely waiting, they're praying. And they're not merely praying, they're studying their Bibles. Okay? So prayer meetings have open Bibles. It was fun to join our prayer team last Friday night that uh, Tim started and is gathering and they're, they're meeting monthly to pray together. And I realized as we gather together, and, and we're studying through and praying through the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. I thought, this is, this is exactly right. Prayer meetings are Bible meetings. Prayer meetings need to have open Bibles. So they're praying, but they're praying and they're reading their Bibles. They're praying through the scriptures. They're praying with the scriptures. The Bible is included in their times of prayer. Our prayer times ought to be Bible times. There's a wonderful little story from George Mueller in his autobiography talking about his devotional life. George Mueller was a, an evangelist in the early 1800s, and uh, he also started a, a large orphanage and had just a life full of supernatural stories about God's provision for these orphans that he oversaw and cared for. In his autobiography, he talks about his personal life, his personal devotional life, and he talked about how he struggled for years, for 10 years, wanting to pray, trying to pray. So every morning he would get up, 
He would get dressed and he would devote himself to spend time in prayer. But he find that his mind constantly wandered and he was constantly fighting with himself and struggled over and over again, month after month, year after year, to really pray as he thought he should, as he wanted to in his soul. He changed his practice. Let me read a little bit to you. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning early in the morning. The first thing I did after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious word was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it. Not for the sake of the public ministry of the word, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately, more or less, into prayer. When thus I have been for a while making confession or intercession or supplication, or have given thanks, I go on to the next words for myself, or I go on to the next verse, turning all as I go on into prayer for myself or others, as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my soul as the object of my meditation. The result of this is that there is always a good deal of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or intercession mingled with my meditation, and that my inner man almost invariably is almost sensibly nourished and strengthened, and that by breakfast time, with a rare exception, I'm in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. We use this article in our leadership training class, but I wanted you all to hear, some of you have read this already and are are familiar with this, but what a way to transform your devotional life. Word and prayer. Not one and the other. Not do this, then do that. Not separate those two, but get those two functioning together. And you'll really reach new heights of seeking the Lord and praying, let God's word be a tool in your communion with God and pray through the scriptures, interact with the scriptures, interact with God via the scriptures. It changed his life and it will change yours as well. From waiting to prayer, from prayer to Bibles, from Bibles to action. Peter realized a response was needed. Jesus made the connection with the 12 disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel back in Luke 22. So Peter and the apostles have been instructed by Jesus that a team of 12 is important. The 12 is a significant phrase in the New Testament. But now the 12 are 11. Back in Luke 22, 
Jesus said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, Jesus is laying down a continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. And these 12 apostles are representative of something that God is continuing to do. Peter realizes it must be fulfilled. And he gets this from Psalm 109, verse 8, where it says, May his days be few, and he realizes this is a reference to Judas, and may another take his office. So they walk through a process to appoint a replacement for Judas. Okay? I don't know if you've thought about this or what you believe about this, but there is an argument out there that this was a total mistake on the part of the apostles and that Matthias is really not the 12th apostle, but the apostle Paul is actually God's choice for apostle number 12. So these guys were just off their game. They were just running ahead of God and they formulated a plan and they carried it out. So I'd like to just walk through briefly the arguments for and against, just as a little, okay, this is how you can think things through biblically. I'll give you the evidences laid out on both of these arguments. You can measure them, and I'll tell you which is the right answer at the end. A case for Paul being the 12th apostle. Jesus chose the 12, not the 11. The 11 were not supposed to do the choosing Jesus was. Jesus chose Paul directly. We have record of that. Jesus could have resolved this during the 40 days. He was on earth with them, interacting with them, but didn't, presumably because Paul was going to show up later. The Spirit had not yet been given, and they were told to wait, not replace Judas. They cast lots, which to you and I would presumably be opposed to being led by the Spirit. And Paul makes a very strong case for him being an apostle, and Matthias is never mentioned again. Okay, those are the stated arguments for a, I vote for Paul being apostle number 12. Okay, the other side of the argument, the case for Matthias. There's nothing in Luke's writing to indicate this was a mistake. It was done in prayer, and the Lord himself was asked to make the final decision. While casting lots seems odd to you and me, it was certainly at the time and throughout the Old Testament an acceptable form of determining the Lord's will. Yes, the Spirit was about to be given, but the, empower, the Spirit was given to empower witness not necessarily new decision-making powers. There was a purpose for the Holy Spirit. Jesus had already entrusted the apostles with authority. Now, Paul was chosen for another apostolic role with the Gentiles. And the 12 were referenced before Paul arrives on the scene in Acts 2.14 and 6-2. Now, this is probably, in my mind, the most compelling evidence in favor 
of Matthias. So before Paul is sort of listed in as an apostle and shows up on the scene, the 12 are being listed and referenced and talked about. So there's a recognition of the 12 being complete. So prior to uh, Matthias, they're the 11. After Matthias, they're the 12. And before Paul. We never read of Paul being among the 12. In fact, he records Jesus appearing to the 12 and then to himself. Another very compelling biblical evidence in favor of Matthias. So Paul distinguishes himself from the 12, not including himself in the 12. And only a few of the apostles are mentioned in the remainder of Acts. While we have all 11 names that we just read in our text, I think there's only three of them whose names show up in the rest of the book of Acts. So to say Matthias doesn't show up is really not significant. Most of them don't show up by name in the rest of the book of Acts. I think it's a strong case to say Matthias was legit. He takes the number 12 slot, and God has something altogether beyond that for the apostle Paul. Okay, that wasn't really my point today, but I thought, and I used to read this and think, what about Paul? What about Paul? So I wanted to just walk through that for you. But the point is, the church is called to obey the scriptures. This is what came out of the prayer meeting. This is what came out of the waiting. This is what came out of the open Bible prayer meeting. Oh, God has spoken. God has said something. And so we now, as his people, are called to obey and fulfill what has been said. The great commission that Jesus gave to the disciples says, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is part of the commission. The witnessing and the work of making disciples involves saying, I, I need to teach you about everything that Jesus taught, teaching you to obey and do what Jesus has said. Jesus himself said, if, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. That is the outworking of your love for me. I know when we hear the phrase, the scriptures must be fulfilled, we tend to only think in terms of historical events. God predicts things that are going to happen and they will be fulfilled because his word is powerful. It will not return void. It will accomplish what it's set out to do. But that is not the sum total of what God has said, just predicting future events. All scripture will come to pass. You and I are called to follow and obey all that the scriptures say. I have to wonder and I have to ask the question, do we live with that conviction in our hearts? What God said must be fulfilled in my life. Or do we read the New Testament and think, pretty good recommendations. I tend to think of them more like guidelines. Yes, we know, we realize we do not obey God's word perfectly, but that's not the question and that's not the issue. The question is, how do we understand the word of God? If I were to read just a few verses out of the book of Ephesians, 
Ephesians 4, 17. Just listen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. But be angry, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Do we stumble along the way in walking this out? Absolutely. Do we, do we fail often? Do we come up short often? Yes, yes, we do. But do you think in terms of what God has said as being the scripture that must be fulfilled? Do you know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, bringing about this word of God in our lives? This is what God is doing in and through us, this and more, and all the commands of the Old Testament, and all the things that Jesus taught. These are the scriptures that must, will be fulfilled in you, in me, in us. This is what the Lord is doing. The grace of God and the presence of the Spirit find expression in each of our lives as the Scriptures actually begin to direct our lives. They have a prayer meeting. They read their Bibles. God speaks. They know what to do. Forming our thoughts, forming our words, determining our actions more and more, more and more like Christ as we grow, as we pray, as we study our Bibles, as we apply the Word of God to our lives. Friends, not, there's, there's nothing but faith and repentance that are required for your salvation. There's nothing you can add to it. You can't do good, clean up, show up better, do something nice for God, you, you cannot contribute. All, all that is required from any of us and all of us, faith, repentance. But when faith and repentance functions in our lives and we come to Christ and we're given a new life in Christ, it is a new life to be lived. 
Now we begin living out a new life, who we are in Christ by the power of God's Spirit. Okay. Let me close. Worship team, come on up. So, friends, before all the excitement starts in chapter 2, okay, next Sunday, next Sunday when it all gets really exciting, all the good stuff begins to happen and the Spirit gets brought before that. Chapter 1, still in chapter 1, a couple foundational realities we have to have fixed in our souls because we will never leave these. We cannot build anything on or beyond these two things. It's all about Jesus. We are nothing outside of him. We can do nothing apart from him. All things can take place because of him and in him. And in Christ, the scriptures must be fulfilled, which includes you and I and us corporately walking according to the scriptures in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is our guide. The Word of God is firm, fixed, steadfast. We will not move beyond it. We will not get so filled with the Spirit, so filled with the power and glory of God that we don't need our Bibles anymore. We will need them all the more. It will never become less important. So, let's stand together from waiting to prayer, from prayer to Bibles, from Bibles to living, to actions. This is how we're changed by God's power. This is how we'll know and enjoy the power of God's spirit and the supernatural life that he's bringing us into.